pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus who is revealed to us in this word. We thank you that this is the truth and it's the truth that we need. We pray by the power of your spirit that you would use this time and these words to conform us more to the image of your son in whose name we pray, amen. You may be seated. When I was growing up in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, going out to dinner was risky business. It was risky business because though a little bit larger than Columbia, it's a small town, especially back in those days. And when you would go out to eat, invariably, you would run into someone that you knew. And it was risky because Anna Quinn's dad, that's to say my dad, Uh, when he spotted someone that he knew would try to sneak up on them from behind, drape a napkin over his arm, and ask if they were ready to order. And I think at least on one occasion, someone started to answer with their order and then looked up and saw that their pastor was standing before them taking their order. And as a 13 or 14-year-old, there aren't too many things more mortifying than seeing your dad do something like that in a restaurant, especially with people that you know. But we actually see this a lot these days. It's sort of come into vogue of of someone famous pretending to be a nobody. And uh, Kyrie Irving, NBA All-Star a few years ago, would dress up as Uncle Drew as this old man and go and play pickup basketball and would fumble around for a while and then would suddenly be doing his NBA All-Star madness on them. Or Cristiano Ronaldo, uh, one of the best soccer players in the world, dressing up as a homeless man and and playing keep away from people on the streets of Madrid. Or uh, the singer Jewel, uh, dressing up in costume and going to a karaoke bar and singing her own songs and seeing if anyone would recognize her. Uh, We we have these, these things going on these days of people pretending not to be themselves going into a situation with their fans and seeing what will happen. And, and it's easy for us to go, Jesus is just waiting for these guys to get it. And, and suddenly there's going to be all of this hurrah and everything's great. And as perhaps some of these famous people are actually just looking for more glory when they hide themselves and go amongst their fans. Jesus is actually going about something totally different. Well, what's happening? It's the day of the resurrection. It's the day of the resurrection, the the incarnate God. God become man. He has come to earth, and he has lived, and he has had relationship with people, and he has suffered and he has died. He has left behind all glory and all the comfort that he had had before. He's died an agonizing death. He's declared it is finished. And now on the third day, he's rising again. And if it's you or me, it's sort of job well done. I need a break. It's vacation time. Let's take a cruise. Let's go get a nice meal. Where's a hammock? 
We're, we're something that I can do to kick back. And what does Jesus do? He takes a walk. He goes on a seven-mile walk from Jerusalem to this town of Emmaus, and he goes at a pace fast enough to be able to overtake two people that are there along the way talking. And he comes up on them, and he butts into their conversation. Hey, what are y'all talking about? What is all this stuff? And, and they look at him like he's a, the village idiot because they're saying, everybody knows what's going on. The whole city is in uproar and in turmoil because this man that we thought was a prophet, and this man who was mighty in word and in deed, this man that we had hoped would be for the redemption of Israel was killed three days ago. And everybody knows about it. How on earth do you not know about it? And then they add, but there are also these women who went to the tomb this morning and they're saying it's empty and that they've seen a vision and the word's out that he's alive. Uh, and some of our men went, and they, they, they checked it out because, you know, the, the women are saying it's empty, but we have to verify. And the guys are saying it's empty too, but they didn't have any visions, and they don't know what's going on. And so we're going back home. Uh, all this stuff's going on in Jerusalem, and we're going to go to Emmaus instead. And they're sad. And they're downtrodden. And we've passed through, we're in the 24th chapter of Luke here. Or, or you can go through 16 chapters of Mark, or 28 of Matthew, or 21 of John. And you don't bump into these two guys. These two people. It actually doesn't tell us if, uh, if the other disciple is a man or a woman. We don't run into these people. Uh, but we have this guy, Cleopas, talking. And it's the only time his name gets mentioned in the whole Bible. And Jesus has decided, I'm going to go on this walk, and I'm going to approach these two people no one's ever heard of. I'm going to come up to these disciples. Maybe they were part of the 72 that Jesus had sent out. Maybe they weren't. But they weren't of the twelve. You know, we're kind of thinking if Jesus is going to appear to somebody right now, it's Peter. Uh, you know, Peter, okay, we, we got to talk about this denying me thing. Or, or John, the beloved disciple. And Jesus instead decides to take a walk and engage with these two insignificant disciples. The disciples, one of whose name we don't even know, the other, just one mention. These disciples who were so sad and downcast and so unbelieving of the testimony of the resurrection that they were leaving Jerusalem. And Jesus engages with them. And starts to say, this is what this is all really about. I'm not coming to Peter and John and telling them what all the scriptures have to say about me. I'm not 
going to them right now and giving them the proof that I'm alive. He's actually going to these relative nobodies. And part of what we can see from there is for Jesus, there are no insignificant disciples. In our economy, uh, we might elevate a pastor, an elder, a deacon, and certainly people worthy of respect. Uh, We might elevate the people that have the extraordinary gifts that we see up front, or the people that are a constant blessing to the community, or the people that write books, the people that get quoted in sermons. We go, oh yeah, those, those are the real guys. And yet, for Jesus, there are no insignificant disciples. There are no nobodies in his kingdom. That for every person who's following him, even when you're stumbling in your faith, when you're saying, I believe, help my unbelief, when you're saying, yeah, there are these reports of these good things about you, but I'm not sure I believe them. Jesus is showing there are no insignificant, no insignificant disciples. And he's showing that he loves even those that we would call insignificant. He has mercy on those we would call insignificant. He reaches out to those that we might call insignificant. He reveals himself to them, pours out his grace and his love. Years ago, uh, when we were living in the city of Guadalajara, Mexico, uh, we engaged in these strange-to-us dynamics of, of the class structure that we found there. And, and there were people that thought we walked on water for being American and for being missionaries and for having some level of training. And, and finally, we saw the lights come on with this one woman as we were getting ready to leave. And she was talking to Amy. And she says, you know what? I understand now. We're sisters in Christ. And our inheritance is the same. And, and uh, she didn't say everything in, involved in that, but, you know, this, you're so rich. And you're so privileged. And, and here you're the elite, and I'm a nobody. She says, but I know that we're actually the same before Christ. And that our Father loves us. And it's so easy for us to have this, this feeling. Do I really matter to God? Does God really love me? Does the creator of all things really know my name? Does what's going on in my life really matter to him? And the answer is yes. Jesus seeks out the insignificant and gives them grace and gives them acceptance. But he also corrects them. What's the first thing he says? Oh, foolish ones. Oh, foolish men. How is it that you don't understand? How is it you don't understand that it was necessary that the Christ should die? 
How do you not know that it's necessary that these things were going to happen? That the Christ would suffer and enter into his glory. Was it not necessary? And, and he's talking about various things there. First of all, there's just this pattern in Scripture. There's a pattern of suffering before exaltation. Joseph is betrayed, kidnapped, sold into slavery. He receives false accusations. He's thrown into jail, and then he's exalted. Moses, almost killed as a baby, is adopted slash kidnapped. He's then exiled, having been rejected. And then he's exalted. David is overlooked. He's hunted down like an animal. And then he's exalted. And there's this pattern in Scripture And Jesus is telling these guys, how is it possible that the Christ would escape this pattern that's already been played out for you time after time? That before exaltation, there is suffering. How's your suffering going? What's your pain? You overwhelmed by what's going on in your life, by what's going on in the world? You, you feel that pain, you feel that discomfort, or you turn on the news this morning and you see bombings in Sri Lanka and people dying as they're going to church on Easter Sunday. You, you look at the ugliness, you look at the death and the destruction. You look at those things inside yourself that you just can't change. Do you want to give up? throw in the towel. The pattern, what should be normal in life is that those in God's story suffer awaiting exaltation. The exaltation comes, but only through the path of suffering. Can we really sing Where, O death, is now thy sting? Can we really sing, Where thy victory, O grave? We sung it a few minutes ago. Do we know that? Do we believe that? There is victory, and there is exaltation, and yet there's suffering along the way. But it's not just that pattern in Scripture. But there's actually prophecy and and foreshadowing in the scriptures that specifically this was going to happen to Jesus. We read in Isaiah 53 of the suffering servant, the one from whom people would turn away, the one who would bear in agony the guilt and shame of his people. We see the sacrifice of Isaac, Abraham being sure that God would raise him from the dead. Though he was not killed, in faith, Abraham went, believing that he was going to have to do that. The sacrificial system itself is pointing to the need for a greater sacrifice that only through death, only through that deepest suffering, would reconciliation with God come. And Jesus is saying, guys, it was in the Bible. 
It was in the scriptures. And then it says that starting with Moses and all the prophets, he shows them what all the scriptures had said about himself. And every now and then there's this tendency. There's this tendency that we have to go, this is my favorite verse. This is my favorite chapter. This is my favorite book. And, and within that, that's okay. It's good to say, God has resonated in my heart with this word, and that's great. And yet, Jesus is also saying there's no insignificant scripture. There are no insignificant disciples. But there's also, there's no insignificant scripture. The Bible gives testimony to who Jesus is. If we're going to sum up the message of the whole Bible, if we're going to sum up the message of the Old Testament, it's Jesus. The whole book is talking about him. And as tempting as it can be to say, well, there are some books and they're Old Covenant and they don't matter. Uh, We do our annual reading of the Bible and through Genesis, we're pretty good. Through Exodus 1 through 20, we're all right. And then we're saying, what? And Leviticus, and suddenly we're no longer doing those check marks in our little thing every year. Uh, For anyone else who's guilty on those. Uh, and, and, and we get into these obscure things and we're just not understanding and, and our, tempt, our temptation is to say these are flyover books. They don't matter. They're not significant. And yet what is Jesus saying? This word is telling you about me. This scripture is about me. Uh, Paul writes to Timothy saying uh, in 2 Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures. Now, when Timothy was an infant, the Holy Scriptures only consisted of the Old Testament. But then what does he say? Which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This Old Testament scripture is talking about Jesus. And then he goes on to say words perhaps a little more familiar to us. All scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And Paul primarily had the Old Testament in mind when he said that. This, this, this scripture is not insignificant. These are words of life. These are words that should cause us to rejoice because for those of us who are not insignificant disciples, after all, we can rejoice in having significance in Jesus and having these scriptures that are not insignificant either, that the God of the universe has spoken to us and he's revealing himself to us. Who is he? What is he like? What does he want? What are we before him? How do we relate to him? It's not insignificant. It's glorious. We get to know him. And Jesus comes to these men and says, this book is talking about me. This book is showing you who I am. And this book is showing that the fulfillment of all things is found in me. So they've had this conversation and they're going along the way and they get to Emmaus and these 
disciples invite Jesus in. And he comes in. And he suddenly kind of takes things over. He's invited into their house, but suddenly he's acting as if he's the host. And he takes the bread. And he blesses it. And he breaks it. And suddenly their eyes that had been kept from recognizing who he was are opened. And he vanishes. He vanishes. And suddenly they say, oh my goodness, we have been talking with the risen Christ this whole time. This was Jesus. We were just saying to him that we had really hoped this guy would be the one to redeem us. And it was him. And he put up with us. And and he had mercy on us and he explained these things to us. He broke bread with us. But then something is really radically different now because he vanished. And they go scurrying back to Jerusalem. And they find the other disciples. And, and, and they want to tell them the news, but before they can tell them the news, the disciples are telling them the news. It's true. Jesus is alive. We, we, we thought he was dead. We thought those women uh, were on something. Uh, they got up too early that morning. We don't know what's going on. But he's appeared also to Simon. And they say, we saw him too. He came to us. And this is joyful news. This is joyful news because this isn't just any resurrection. We've seen resurrection in the scriptures before. We've seen people resuscitated. We've seen the Old Testament prophets bring people back to life. Jesus and his ministry brought back people to life. But now there's something radically different because Jesus is radically different. And this is, we shouldn't say whatever, everyday resurrection, because we don't have everyday resurrection. But this is a class apart. This is not an insignificant resurrection. This is a life-altering, cosmos-altering, universe-altering resurrection. This is something that has come in with power. This is something that has come in, and now nothing else can be the same. As these disciples said, did our hearts not burn within us when he was opening the scriptures? Do we not see that now that there is something radically new, radically different? Jesus is who he said he was. He rose, and this hope that we had had for redemption can now be found in him. That this longing that we have for the end to suffering, the end to sickness, the end to the devil's power, to his reign, that the end to death is now in sight. That now everything is categorically different. Nothing else will ever be the same. And we can rejoice. We can rejoice that our Lord has not found us to be insignificant. We can rejoice that these scriptures before us that speak of him are not insignificant, and we can rejoice that this resurrection is not insignificant. It is changing everything. 
in J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, The Return of the King, there is this moment where Sam Gamgee wakes up after great suffering and great trial, and he finds out that they actually survived. And he finds out that his friends are alive. And he finds out that one that he thought was dead had come back to life. And he finds out that the person that perhaps he admires most is now king. And he says, is everything sad going to come untrue? And our passage is telling us everything sad is going to come untrue. Because the real Christ has suffered and he's died and he's truly risen. He's the Christ of the scriptures and he's the Christ who has mercy on sinners like me, like you. Our hearts should burn, should burn with words that bring life. Because Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And we have his word before us. Those who are in Christ have his word within them by the Spirit. And that word is powerful. And that word transforms. That word brings life. So what are we to do? Rejoice. Rejoice at a Savior who is risen. And rejoice that he loves those like you and me. Rejoice that he has this message that is not just for us. It's for all who would believe in him. For all who would look at the works of their own hands, who would look at the realities of their own lives and would say, it's not enough. I need someone to come in. I need Jesus. My righteousness isn't good enough. My works aren't good enough. And I cry out and cling to him. That's a message for us. That's a message for our world. If you're here this morning hearing this word and you're not sure, you're not sure of where you are with Jesus, look to him, cling to him, believe in him, fall down before him, and you'll find your significance in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a significant Savior. We thank you that you would have mercy on the likes of us. We thank you that you have shown mercy and grace and love. And we thank you for new life. Give us joy in Jesus. Let us rejoice because he is alive. And because of that, all things are different. And everything sad will come, tr- will come untrue. We thank you in his name. Amen.